You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, and you can find out more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. All legal podcasts have disclaimers, and this one is no exception. Our hosts today are national security lawyers who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. I'm Yvette. National Security Law Today is the podcast about national security issues in the news. We provide critical baseline information on national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. We strive to present unbiased information and legal context for the things you hear in the news that may seem mystifying if you don't understand the law. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes of this podcast. At the end of this cast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. All right, our guest today is the author of Cyber Mercenaries, The State Hackers and Power, Mr. Tim Maurer. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right, he is the co-director of the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. For those of you who are think tank geeks, um, he has a lofty history at Two of the Best, The New America, as well as CSIS. It's just really great to have you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about this book. It's an important conversation, and um, let me just remind our listeners, when did you stop collecting information for this book? Let's have some context. That's an important question. Um, I stopped writing on the manuscript and adding new material uh, in the summer of 2016. Ah, I see. So right before the election became even hotter. Exactly. And I decided that this would be a good time to stop because it was unclear what else would uh, unfold and it was a clear cut of date. Well, that is great because this book raises some very interesting issues which are suddenly more at play in everyone's mind um, as opposed to just that of the minds of those inside the Beltway. Uh, but tell us, what is the premise of this book, if you would? When I started writing this book four years ago, or when I started the research for this book, we were in the midst of the cyber war debate, where people started talking about states attacking each other with hackers. And I realized that it was very state-centric and very much Cold War associations coming into play. But when you actually talk to the hacker community and people in law enforcement and in the intelligence community, you quickly realize that there are much more interesting relationships at play between states and hackers that aren't part of the state. So the book is essentially about these proxy relationships between states and hackers that are somewhat detached from the state itself. So um, let's just say there have been a proliferation of these groups. I think it would be fair to say. But if you could give us some of the characters uh, that you refer to, and if you would sort of refer to their country of, I should say, residents, not necessarily their countries of origins, and uh, sort of in general what their agendas uh, appear to be. Yeah, so the the cast of this, uh, if we want to call it a play, (laughs) um, is pretty diverse because you have every 
type of character ranging from a 22-year-old Canadian citizen living in Canada working with Russian intelligence officers to uh, somebody like Eugene Dokukin, who uh, says he's the commander of the Ukrainian cyber forces. Um, so I actually traveled to Ukraine in 2015 to interview him and to learn more about the group. But if you look at the type of hackers that are being used by different states, you have a very you have a range of actors ranging from criminals to politically driven hacktivists, so hackers that are activists, um, to even contractors and companies that are offering their services for hire. And so, we're any we in the United States, we have a system where if somebody gets uh, in trouble and they're charged with an offense uh, and they plead guilty. Um, very often they can go into the employ of law enforcement and reduce their sentence thereby uh, by cooperating. Did you see any evidence that this was occurring elsewhere? Uh, yes, and both anecdotal evidence during my field research and then also the indictments that were unsealed by the U.S. government in the past few years. Specifically, when we're looking at Eastern Europe, there are there have always been rumors about this relationship between criminals and the law enforcement agencies in those countries, that if the criminals were about to be arrested in countries in Europe or uh, wanted by the FBI, that they would go back to Russia um, and the law enforcement agencies would turn a blind eye to their criminal activity elsewhere, um, but might occasionally... Uh, re rely on them for their own operations. And the most detailed account we have of that to date is actually the Yahoo breach, where the indictment focusing on Yahoo includes one individual who was on the FBI's most wanted list. And then once he was able to actually uh, get out of Europe and go back to Russia, then was working with these two FSB officials to conduct what is the remains the largest data breach in history. Wow. So you're talking about a lot of different actors, you know, and what kinds of impact they can have across borders. And you're also talking, interested in um, different types of actors. So non-state actors that are empowered by states, states on states. Can you just tell us a little bit about what international norms are in place, sort of like regulate this behavior? Because the law is not very developed in this area. Yeah, actually, as part of my initial research, I spent a fair amount of time looking at the existing international legal framework, and I should declare that I'm not an international lawyer, so you please uh, correct me. Um, it'll be hard to correct that in the book, but nevertheless, I can uh, <laughs> the article. But if we look at the existing legal standards um, that relate to proxy relationships um, in the different uh, rulings that have come out over the past few decades, it's clear that the standards are very high. If we look, for example, at the effective control standard that was established in the Nicaragua case, it's very clear that for a state to be held responsible for the action of an actor under the effective control standard, the state has to be very actively involved. And anything that falls below the threshold from the provision of equipment to funding does not meet the threshold of effective control. And if we look at most of the proxy relationships that exist today with hackers, they do not qualify, at least based on the public information that we know today, uh, for that uh, specific threshold. Apart from the specific relationship and whether or not the state responsibility applies to that specific relationship, you have challenges with regard to the actual 
action itself and whether the effect of the action would qualify as an international wrongful act um, and whether the effects actually trigger any sort of, of um, violation under the existing international legal framework. In other words, short, long story short, the current international legal framework, I think, provides some guidance specifically for the types of operations and hacks where the effect is similar to use of force or physical damage, somebody dies. But for the vast majority of operations that we've seen that are in this gray zone, we do not have a very good guide for what kind of norms and international law applies. There are various efforts underway that try to establish these norms, but they remain very nascent, um, specifically when it comes to proxy relationships. And these kinds of effects can be quite significant, right? They're, even though they're in this gray zone and we haven't had anybody dying yet, uh, yes, these effects are increasingly um, damaging, disruptive, to the extent that in the NotPetya case last year, which was this massive ransomware attack that infected systems around the world, you had individual companies who had to pay over $300 million in order to clean up their systems or replace them. Uh, so we are no longer talking about a, a couple of million. This is really quickly merging into the realm of being a, a national security uh, and, and question of survival for some of these companies. And can you talk a little bit about some of the efforts that have recently taken place in order to establish more clear guidance than we have right now? Yeah, so the most advanced effort to date is probably the process through the United Nations through what's called the UN Group of Governmental Experts, which has included the US, Russia, China, Israel at one point, India, the UK, France. So all of your usual suspects of uh, having uh, developed defensive capabilities and, and used them in the past. And in 2013 and 2015, they came to consensus reports that specifically called out proxies and said that the use of proxies uh, is something that the international community uh, frowns upon and that should not be conducted. They didn't define what they mean by proxies, and not surprisingly. And I think the most, probably the most effective that we will see unfold in the coming years is the focus on due diligence and applying the concept of sovereignty um, because it circumvents whether or not the whole operation is sponsored by a state and really goes back to the heart of sovereignty and the responsibility of the state that claims to be the sovereign of the territory and claims jurisdiction over the territory. Can we amplify that just for a moment? Because um, you, lawyers think of due diligence in the context of compliance. Did we review everything? Did we you know, dot every I, cross every T? Due diligence in this context means something very different. Yeah, um, good point. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, domestic, international, uh, sometimes the two are pretty delinked. So the due diligence concepts in, in international law is essentially tied to the concept of sovereignty that a state is responsible for the activities of its citizens and individuals on the territory and needs to prevent the potential negative effects of those individuals on another country. So you have the trail smelter uh, judgment that was, uh, depending on how you listen to, either an international case or it was a bilateral case, uh, but was one of the first uh, precedents for the concept of due diligence that a state is responsible for the actions of its individual from the territory. And the, the argument for, in the case of a cyber attack, is essentially that if you are the country where a major DDoS attack is emanating from, for example. Uh, the first argument is that we, 
if you're the victim, you don't care whether the state is directly involved or not. But the state at least is responsible for uh, stopping the activity if I ask the state to stop as the victim. And whether or not the state is responsible uh, down the road is a separate question to answer. But that based on the concept of sovereignty and having control, the state should not refuse putting an end to the to the attack because otherwise you could make the case it's an indication that the state might have uh, the fingers involved and um, puts the blame rather on the state. Well, that's a that's an interesting um, an interesting concept, but it plays out very differently in cyber than it does in sort of a kinetic and physical world in the sense that in the United States we have rigid export controls of fissile material, dangerous items, um, arms, uh, and I, you know we do strive very hard to prevent those things from going out. We forbid companies from doing so without given licenses and so on. Um, but it's a very different thing when something is happening uh, in the cybersphere. It's very hard sometimes for governments to even be aware of that fact. Very true, and it raises a, a series of questions of how far do you take the concept of due diligence, which uh, some countries have proposed that this should be a new legal standard extended to cyberspace, and several governments have taken the view that we should not take it as far as being considered a legal obligation, but rather a political commitment. Because if you look at the statistics, where most of the uh, infected zombie computers that form a botnet uh, are situated, it's actually the United States. So if there would be a legal requirement for due diligence to apply, then, in other words, the U.S. government would sign up for being legally responsible to clean up the botnets that are located on U.S. territory, and that then raises some interesting, including legal questions with Internet service providers and other actors in this space. Um, let me let me clarify that for a minute. You said the bots are located here, and those are ones that have been uh, hijacked for our listeners who are less initiated. Uh, but but uh, just to make clear, you're also saying the command and control nodes, um, and they are being um, their activities are being dictated from computers located in the United States. If you were to see the lights on a map, for instance, the United States would seem very lit up if that was a intended to give a topographic, you know, sort of rendering of what's going on out there. And it, it raises the question, like, where do you where do you focus your attention to? Are, are you going after the infected computers of innocent people all around the country who don't often even know that their computer has, has been infected? <laughs> and botnets are also not that hard to replicate once you've taken one down, another one pops up. Um, so... Part of this discussion is whether you should actually focus on the malicious threat actor and try to arrest them and, and, and go after them or to, to deter them if you can't arrest them, um, and or whether there is value in actually trying to clean up uh, the system and making them less of a platform for these attacks. So this plays into this broader discussion of what status the concept of due diligence should have in this space. but. When it comes to malicious activity originating from country where it's really hard to arrest anybody because there is no cooperation with those countries, then the concept of due diligence is an important concept to at least make some progress to get these governments to take certain actions for the most severe type of incidents. Let's uh, talk about some of the data that you give about um, U.S. government contractors and proxies abroad, right? So we have all of these different actors in this space, Raytheon, Mantec, Vapor. Um, can you help distinguish that from, like, some of the groups that, we, that we've encountered abroad? 
Yeah, there's obviously a huge difference between uh, the relationship <laughs> between those companies and, and the U.S. government and other governments compared to those 22-year-old Canadian and, and the FSB officials. Um, the reason why I included um, contractors in the book and, and as part of this arguably fairly broad framework of proxy relationships is because there is an, there is an underlying policy argument that I'm making in the book in that we ideally want other states to have as tight control over their hackers as we do in our relationships with contractors. Uh, because these contractors, uh, these companies, there are clear contracts in place, uh, a lot of times requirements for them to sit right next to the operators at the national security agencies that they work and support. Um, so there is very tight control and there is very, very little risk that they might do something that uh, was not intended. The looser that relationship is, the higher the risk that one of those proxies might become a rogue actor or might be, have a bigger risk appetite than their actual masters uh, intended, uh, which is then very hard to tell from the other side of you're actually the victim. And you can't tell, is this something that Moscow intended or is this something that this criminal happened to pursue uh, without Moscow actually knowing? Um, or Tehran, or China, or um, pick your favorite uh, favorite country. So the underlying argument is the ideal scenario for this kind of relationship is one where the control is very tight. So the risk of accidents and escalation is as as small as possible. Um, so I'm stretching the concept of proxies quite a bit in the book, but uh, the purpose is to to hold up what I think is the the ideal case and to then discuss how we might be able to get other countries to follow suit and, and follow this model. Sure, but um, a lot of these countries have a, you know, have a, a, a re- there's a reason that they have that relationship with these groups because they want to be able to disavow some of these bad activities later. You know, um, what are we, what are good actors to do in the face of, you know, malevolent actors? Yeah, so plausible deniability is, for some countries, obviously, the function of these proxy relationships Mm -hmm. uh, for countries like the U.S. or Israel or other uh, countries that I think are technically more advanced. It's the technical sophistication that provides that plausible deniability, right? There is a reason, I think, that uh, Stuxnet remains an operation where the New York Times says one thing and then there's silence on the other side. Um, so there is a, a different ways for how you can achieve that, that very purpose. But even so, I think even the countries where for cultural reasons, like in Iran, they've been using proxies for decades, right? So I think cyber proxies are not that different. Um, for these other countries, they have an in- inherent interest as well to at least keep the control tied to a certain extent, and to come up with a regime where they say that certain operations are not going to be delegated because they cross a certain threshold and they do want to remain in control of the escalatory Mm -hmm. dynamic. So the Iran case, I think, is fascinating because the way that some of their malicious activity in the past years coincided with diplomatic negotiations showed a fairly advanced understanding for how they can use it, how they can dial up the pressure, how they can dial it down, um, which suggests that their their proxies aren't as loose as, as uh, you might otherwise think, because otherwise you couldn't do this dialing up and down. It also has a flavor of asymmetric warfare for countries that just don't have the military might of the United States, um, and, and just another technique. And it, it also feels... Um, 
as if it's it's really just another conflict technique that we're exploring now. You know, we've gone from hitting each other over the heads with mallets to, you know, developing gun, you know, knives and then firearms and then bombs of, of varying capabilities. This just feels like um, a little bit of the next step in humanity's uh, evolution. Um, so it, it, I would emphasize here, though, it's, it's, it's invisible to the average human being. And we're in a time of heightened um, populism. And so with that in mind, um, the average American operates, uh, I think, sensibly enough with a fear of that which he cannot see um, and great skepticism that uh, any foreign government uh, would be interested in protecting his or her interests. What road do you see forward to implement any greater norms in the face of this sudden shift uh, in, uh, I'll use a German word because I love it. You guys have great words for things, by the way, Belschenschon. Um, did I say that correctly? Very close. If it's well, not clear, Tim is German. <laughs> <laughs> we did not mention that at the outset. Yes. So what's your reaction to this? Not just as uh, 10 years in America, but somebody who's lived in Germany, which has pockets of uh, this as well, if not now, a significant movement um, in that direction. So... The rise of populism is not an entirely new phenomenon, right? We, we've seen this in the past as well. Sometimes it's gone further in a, in a direction and was, um, became more extreme, and sometimes it uh, subsided and went back in the other direction. Um, right now, we see clearly a trend both across Europe and in the U.S., but in other parts of the world um, that sees a resurrection of and reemergence of national borders, populism, inward-looking some say isolationism. The French president's speech in Congress uh, went very much in that direction. Um, but I also think that compared to the past, the world has changed significantly. And we are talking about technology during this podcast. And I think what some of the political leaders right now are uh, sometimes forgetting is we are in a period of rapid technological change. And some of the new risks that are emerging, I think, are going to force uh, international cooperation at one point uh, because they can't, they won't be able to avoid it. The fact that you had uh, the, the WannaCry malware last year that, together with NotPetya, uh, created a cost of over several billion dollars, and in the WannaCry case, even had some hospitals in the UK turn patients away because their systems were down and they couldn't perform uh, certain medical uh, procedures, gives you a sense for how bad this could get fairly quickly. And if that happens, even if governments don't want to talk to each other, they will have to talk to each other. So I think that the technological change that's currently taking place might actually be the f part of the forcing function that uh, get some governments to talk to each other that right now uh, don't want to talk to each other. A bit like mutually assured destruction, exactly. right, in the nuclear context. <laughs> yeah. All Joseph right, we better actually, sit down. If the hospitals are closing, we're in trouble here. Joseph Nye actually, I think, uh, a year ago or two years ago, coined the phrase um, mutually assured vulnerability because of the Internet, and I think that's a pretty good uh, description of, of what we might find ourselves in right now. Quite apt. And, you know, the president has repeatedly made statements that um, express concern about the theft of intellectual, intellectual property um, from China, essentially, you know, using hacking and, you know, 
other ways of, of, um, of affecting both commercial and national security systems. What do you think the United States should be doing as far as like our efforts to stop those attacks and also work with the Chinese government? So looking at what the strategy has been for the past several years and the strategy of the U.S. government, it was fascinating to watch how starting in 2013, there were many more openly uh, and explicit statements regarding the Chinese government and intellectual property theft um, that amounted to what I consider a concerted strategy by the U.S. government to increase pressure all the way up to the threat of sanctions uh, just ahead of the visit by President Xi in 2015, culminating in a bilateral agreement between President Obama and President Xi with the Chinese side agreeing not to conduct cyber-enabled theft, uh, cyber theft of intellectual property for competitive advantages. You can tell that there must have been more than one lawyer in the room when this language was written. Um, <laughs> but it's essentially economic espionage. And... Interestingly, after this bilateral agreement between the two heads of state in September of 2015, cyber threat intelligence companies, as well as officials in the intelligence community, said that they noticed a decrease in activity following this bilateral agreement. Um, that lasted for about a year and a half until about January of 2017, when reports started to emerge that there was again an uptick in activity. And the findings recently of the investigation by the U.S. government that said that this activity has continued. It's unclear, though, whether the Chinese activity is actually a violation of this bilateral agreement or whether Chinese hackers are uh, exploiting loopholes and going after dual-use technology that might not fall under the agreement. Um, so there are some interesting questions around it, but it fed into uh, President Trump's decision to instruct the trade representative to impose tariffs um, because there is the continued concern that Chinese are stealing intellectual property through different mechanisms, including cyber. And there's also been significant national security breach breaches by the Chinese. The OPM hack, for example, where you know millions of government employees' personal data including mine, probably yours, Lisa, <laughs> um, got sucked out of OPM. And, you know, heaven knows where it is. Like, is the fault with the U.S. government for not having um, resilient enough systems? What combination of uh, efforts, including, you know, like creating better technology and diplomacy should we be employing in order to, you know, keep my social security number and my, you know, the last time I lived in Virginia safe? <laughs> uh, great question. And and usually I, I shy away from blaming the victim because there's clearly a party involved that is going after this. Um, but in this case, James Clapper, the director of U.S. intelligence at the time, uh, expressed his admiration for the operation and said, we would have done the same thing because <laughs> this is political espionage and um, currently the U.S. government takes the position that it's fair game, right? But he, he tried to make clear because I think at one point Beijing got quite confused what the U.S. government was actually pressuring them about, whether it was OPM <laughs> or the intellectual property theft. Right. And uh, it got very messy for, I think, several months. Um, We're mad about all of it. <laughs> <laughs> True, but some we want to be uh, uh, clearly a norm that everybody agrees we will not do, and other activity we are, um, the, the U.S. government is less 
um, explicit about because it wants to make sure that that kind of intelligence activity is also permissible for the right. U.S. government. Um, the, the sporting intelligence collection exception for all things, exactly. right? We would Very never. True. And I just say, I would, I would hope that. Uh, systems are better protected because ranging from OPM to the election infrastructure, one day it might be Chinese hackers, the next day it might be Russian hackers, and a week from now it might be a criminal hacker who operates from a third country that we never had on our map. So the best protection, I think, is uh, to use two-factor authentication and to spend more money on protecting the systems. So I want to talk to you for just a second about... um what activities would rise to the level of warfare? And I can think of a couple of things that, even if they appear sporting, could potentially be, you know, implicate sort of a larger threat concept. Um, the first one is an attack on critical infrastructure, um, something, for example, that could keep um, the lights on in New York and perhaps keep people with medical needs alive. Um, uh, interference with elections. If there's a recognition that we have respect for one another's uh, political processes, um, uh, dissemination of propaganda, I think it gets a little wobbly, um, or encouraging or inciting sectarian, clan, racial, or other hatred that could cause dissension and actually warfare um, in some places. What are your thoughts on sort of the level of thing that might implicate serious international violation meriting some sort of agreement. So here I think the fact that I'm not a lawyer I think changes my perspective slightly uh, because I resist the urge that I think some lawyers feel to wanting to define this specifically. I believe the people at the White House have a strong interest in, in other capitals to refrain from explicitly specifying what an act of war would constitute to uh, maintain the political f- flexibility to determine it based on every single circumstance. Um, I think what's pretty clear, if a hack causes the same effect as a conventional weapon, and that conventional weapon would have triggered a war, the same will apply to a hack. So if you hack a system and you uh, kill people, uh, something blows up, and the magnitude of the effect is large enough that it's similar to a bomb, then I think most people would say it's an act of war. Uh, where it gets really interesting is this gray zone uh, interfering in the election. Um, we did haven't we didn't see a lot of people say we need to go to war now. Um, I think there's a reason for that. Part of the reason is that according to the intelligence assessment uh, of the U.S. intelligence community, Putin might have been motivated that he thought that the U.S. had meddled in, in Russian affairs. So there's a slippery slope here in terms of how far you uh, want to go. Are you referencing the uh, the statement in the assessment that said that Putin was ticked off at the United States about the sanctions um, that had come from the State Department when um, Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State? Exactly. And the fact that she made statements in support of the protesters at the time and that it, it went beyond the sanctions to... Uh, supporting statements for people who were protesting in Russia and calling for more uh, democracy. Change of administration, right? Yeah. 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 So, um, th- and this isn't, obviously this is also an issue that 
dates back decades. Uh, the Cubans have been protesting for decades about radio emissions, and um, I don't think that's an issue that uh, any country should go to war with. Uh, I mean, like Voice of America and that sort of thing. That exactly. Is, right? exactly. Um, but I think there are some fascinating questions when it comes to, um, so for example, another area that I've worked on a lot in the last three years has been focusing on the financial system, where you could imagine somebody hacking certain systems and you have financial instability uh, that put a country's economy at risk. You weren't able to do that in the past with a bomb. So how do we deal with these kind of effects that are clearly not killing anybody, you don't have physical damage? Um, but to your point, we do have uh, you know, four or five um, financial institutions in this country that are so large that we've dubbed them too big to fail. Exactly. Uh, and if they fail through a different mechanism than just poorly considered um, uh, mortgage loans, but it's something cyber uh, that could have an impact on the economy of the United States, which has been deemed its uh, among its most essential critical infrastructure elements. Yeah, and whether that is something that might qualify and hit the threshold, I think is a really interesting question. But at the end of the day, it'll come down to the specific political scenario. Because as we've also learned in the last few years is it's it it's, uh, happens more often than not that somebody launches a cyber attack and the effect is different from what was expected. The unpredictability of the effect, I think, is uh, That pesky malware. A, it could do all kinds of things one doesn't anticipate, right? Exactly. Once the worm gets out, you never know where it might end up. Uh, you might have an article in the New York Times. Um, um, and I think there are signs that when it comes to not Petya and, and the effect that had last year that uh, some people didn't write the code the, the way they planned to and then it got out of hands and became a global thing. Well, I think it's an important conversation, and I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight, Tim. The book is Cyber Mercenaries. It is Cyber Mercenaries, The State, Hackers, and Power. We'll have a hyperlink to the book on our website. We will also hyperlink some of Tim's other articles, uh, which in particular one on the uh, financial sector, which I looked at yesterday evening, uh, I would recommend. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we hope to have you back in the future, and we hope to see the second post-election book. Um, uh, we're very much looking forward to it, where you tackle the uh, all the issues that we can resolve in a time of, of deep populism. Thanks for having me. I'd love to be back on this. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you will never get the recommended daily dose of vitamin D, or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history, and you don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance, then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec and on Facebook. From all of us here, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.